In today's containerized world, it's common to encounter similar issues with known solutions across multiple pods. For most people, there are two solutions. Go pod by pod, finding and fixing the problem, or do that while also spending months trying to automate that process. This is significant time and manual labor. The company Shoreline orchestrates real-time debugging and automated repair across fleets. Shoreline makes it easy to define metrics, alarms, actions, and bots from the CLI to take an action like draining and terminating nodes, tagged for retirement, or finding TLS certificates that are close to expiring. For unknown issues, Shoreline lets you debug across every pod from a single CLI rather than SSHing pod by pod, like running a command to grep for errors. In this episode, we talk with Anurag Gupta, founder and CEO of Shoreline. Full disclosure, Shoreline is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Anurag, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeff. I was particularly interested in this conversation because of your vast experience at AWS. So you were at AWS for seven years, eight months. Before that, you were at Oracle for three, three and a half years. I want to ask you for your condensed thesis on what a cloud should be. What a cloud should be. So what we talked about at AWS was the notion of utility computing, providing compute, storage, database, 140 other services, the way you buy electricity and gas from or telephone or internet from your local utility provider. And so what you really want in that is something that is simple, straightforward to adopt, uh, you know, metered by the usage, and most importantly, that stays up. I mean, you don't really care about features or performance from your electricity provider. What you care about is whether you have power. And so I think that that's, uh, and cost, of course. And so those are the primary two value points, I think, for a cloud provider for whatever service it's providing, uh, cost, simplicity, and uptime. And interestingly, the more more uptime you provide, the more you will rely on something and the more you need. Like my mother-in-law lives in India. She's got a pretty big generator because the power goes out all the time. I don't have a generator, you know, but the power goes out sometimes and then I'm just out of luck. And so I think that's also been part of what's happened as people have moved from on-prem to cloud. The availability has gone up of the underlying infrastructure, but therefore they're resilience characteristics have gone down. They just rely on their cloud providers. Of course, the utility analogy starts to break down when you think about the fact that utility companies just optimize their electricity systems. They don't move up market into what can you do if you refine that electricity. They don't move down market into what happens if we make our own generators, for example, whereas AWS has this vertical as well as horizontal product expansion. And since you became a VP at AWS, I'd love to know, what is the product expansion strategy? Like what's, you know, it's like, how does AWS decide what products to not make? So it's a very much a bottom up as well as top down process. So once a year, all the VPs gather in the room and all of the service teams basically present their last 12 months and their projected next 18. And, you know, at the end of that, you get your headcount for the next year and then 
later on, you also figure out you, what you want to do from a revenue and margin perspective, which determines the uh, hardware that is going to need to get acquired. And so basically people and the uh, underlying infrastructure costs are the major cost drivers for a cloud company like AWS. And so that's where you start to do this initial decisioning around, uh, hey, what should we go build? And then beyond that, you know, everything goes through uh, this working backwards process where you go and huddle in the room with Andy and a hand of, uh, Andy Jassy and a handful of people to describe, okay, this is, let's assume we built this thing and it's everything that we want it to be. What would the PR look like? What would the FAQ look like? What would a narrative uh, look like to say, like, you know, here's the reason to get into this and so forth. So it depends on what the service is, what its objective is going to be. There's services where the objective is to make money. There's services where the objective is to reduce friction for other services making money and so on. So, you know, there are a lot of reasons why you might get into a space. But finally, it's an investment decision. One of the things you may have noticed is, is that AWS very, very rarely uh, turns off services, essentially never. And so, and part of that is this basic thesis that, hey, if it made sense to get into, it makes sense to stay in because the original thesis probably continues to hold. The only uh, thing that maybe the issue is more likely to be a gap in execution rather than a gap in the basic investment philosophy of going after a space because that's relatively unchanging. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Now, I know we're we're getting a little bit deeper into speculation, and, and we're, I want to come to Shoreline eventually. I just want to prod your brain a little bit about how you think about the cloud business. So when you look at the, the product category of Outpost and also like think about the product suite so you have the product suite outpost so amazon outpost amazon what is it nitro the the chips those are the chips right the nitro chips so you have the the outpost product the, the nitro chip product and you have the firecracker product if you think about that product suite what are the kinds of things that can be layered into that stack to further cement amazon's advantage so i think that's an interesting point so the first point there is, you know, Jeff famously said at one point, your margin is my opportunity. And so the notion there is if I'm paying you for money, uh, paying you money for something, then you're obviously collecting margin on it. If I have the ability to create something myself that does the same thing, let's say a chip, then, uh, you know, I can collect the margin equivalent, assume, as, assuming I have enough volume to be able to run that business effectively. So that's one notion. The other notion is, of course, that I get to get onto an innovation curve where I understand how I'm using something and I can build custom for that as opposed to what you're doing, which is providing a general thing that's suitable for many customers. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is the idea of building a moat. And what I mean there is, you know, like Jeff once uh, told us in AWS, like, hey, you've built this great castle in AWS. Now all these barbarians are coming to storm the castle. You know what your castle needs? It needs a moat. And so 
moat in this sense is really the technology moat. What are the things that you're doing that can basically reduce your costs, improve your value by doing things that are custom that other people can't buy? And the more you build those things, the more you grow, the more cap- more things that are available to be built, the cost effectively. So, for example, let's, you know, obviously AWS buys a, a lot of networking cards every year. Eventually, they bought Anapurna and they started building their own. If you save a few cents per networking card, that actually is a meaningful thing. It's well worth burning an engineer on, engineer year on. And then over time, that can help you reduce your costs, reduce your prices, then hope. And then the basic assumption in the virtual cycle there is that as you reduce your prices, you get more volume, which lets you get more scale, which lets you find both more information out as well as, you know, take on more things that help you further gain efficiencies. And, you know, that's been true in retail. It's been true in AWS. It's kind of, it's one of those sort of cycles. If you're in a big enough business, uh, more things are worth doing as you get to scale. Make sense? Yeah. All right. One more general. Do, can I ask you one more general cloud question? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and as many as you want. All right. Okay. So this category is just so interesting to me, and you, you have a very, very good uh, set of insights into it. So actually, maybe a few more. Okay. So one is I've always wondered to what extent the Windows platform is a desirable gold standard lens to for AWS to sort of think of itself through. Because, like, on the on, on one side, like, Windows has this beloved developer platform. It has massive adoption, has people who are never going to go elsewhere. On the other, it's sort of classically regarded as a, a little bit overpriced, perhaps, like, perhaps a, a little too adversarial. Is it a stretch to think of AWS as, as, as borrowing some of the desirable features of the Windows business line, or, or do you think that's just like, you know, kind of far-fetched and not really com- comparable? I think the wonderful thing about Windows and the overall Microsoft developer ecosystem is that things plug together right. very well. Now, right. That's, 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 that's the, it seems like the most positive side of the analogy. Yeah. Now, the thing about AWS, in some ways, you can think of it as a collection of Lego bricks that let you do build almost anything. But it's not like this, you know, there's not just one brick that fits into one other brick. You know, there are a lot, you know, we've AWS favored choice and, you know, letting the customer or developer decide uh, more so than, you know, like basically saying, here's the things that just plug together super well. Now, I mean, there's some things like that. Like everyone must work with their authentication and identity management, right? There's no way around that. You're not going to have two providers in AWS for that. Similarly, uh, things like VPC. But you know, leaving those things aside, you have a, a fair bit of choice in what you can do. And they pride themselves on choice, innovation, and all of those things. You know, with when you compare to Windows, I mean. Windows is a huge business, an important business for AWS. I think they talk about how they have a larger Windows business than Azure does, which is remarkable. You know, the difficulty there is, is of course, you don't get that virtuous cycle of reducing costs year over year there because you're paying money for the license to Microsoft to run that. 
And you know, Microsoft isn't particularly incented to reduce your costs. Okay, I love that analysis. All right, okay, so one more question in this direction. And I feel we're building up your credibility in the AWS department, so that gives us a, a really nice little springboard into the discussion of Shoreline. But this last AWS-related question. So you were part of the AWS database services team, which includes Redshift, and Redshift being the data warehouse within Amazon that is growing extraordinarily fast, even though it's a business that's been around for a while already. What's the long-term strategic positioning there versus Snowflake? I mean, is it sort of like we're just like Amazon does an awesome data warehouse experience and like we don't really think about Snowflake or do you like look at Snowflake and you find the desirable characteristics and you sort of integrate those or like what's the strategic positioning there? Uh, So it depends on who you are. So if you're, you know, some, you know, an executive within AWS, your interest in, let's say, a sales executive or, you know, Andy Jassy before he became CEO of Amazon overall, your interest is in providing customers choice. You don't want to put, uh, you know, you're basically saying that, okay, if you prefer Redshift, great. If you prefer Snowflake, great. If you prefer Teradata Cloud, great. So, you know, you are not trying to give one a leg up over the other. If you're inside the Redshift team, your responsibility is to make Redshift grow as fast as possible. So you look at your various competitors, you look at what they're doing, you think about what innovation you can provide, and most importantly, you think about how to serve your customer, ignoring competitors and just how to do that job better than anybody else is doing it. And so that's really the core approach if you're in product, let's say inside the Redshift team. And that's, uh, it's no different than anything else. Data is an important business in for AWS, obviously. And so, you know, being able to get data workloads from on-prem into the cloud and grow in the cloud is hugely important. How people do that at some level you know, if Snowflake is selling in AWS, they're still buying compute and storage. If Redshift is selling in AWS, it's basically selling and, you know, it's presumably some margin advantage over compute and storage. And so, you know, it's as long as you're getting data workloads in, uh, I think if you're Andy Jassy, you don't terribly care how they're doing it. Obviously, strategically over time, it's reasonable to believe that the various assets inside the data services at AWS will link together better than, let's say, other things and are going to create a little bit, people will be less able to move to Azure or GCP, where, of course, Snowflake also runs. Okay. We've set the table sufficiently. Obviously, you have a deep domain expertise in AWS and cloud more broadly. You've got plenty of background that supports whatever kind of infrastructure business you could want to build. I assume you could have, after you know more than seven and a half years at AWS, you could have literally stood in front of a whiteboard and just wrote down business ideas till the end of time. I mean, if you spend that much time at AWS, you must have that many business ideas. What is the thesis for Shoreline, and why did you pick that business line over all others? It was really based on the 
pain that I saw at AWS, and more importantly, the pain that I saw AWS customers facing. So, you know, you go into a company like AWS and you're experienced building uh, products, right, that you launch and push and other people install and so forth. What I learned at AWS is, you know, like how to run services and the importance of availability in services. So when I started at AWS, they gave me eight people and said, go disrupt data warehousing and transaction processing. So that turned into Redshift and Aurora. And, uh, you know, eventually I also ran uh, things like Glue and EMR and RDS and a bunch of other stuff. But, you know, those were the first two and those were, you know, the fastest growing services after they launched for AWS. So, you know, those were good businesses to get into. But what I learned there is, is that it wasn't so much about building the engine technology. It was that, of course, but about half my overall teams were doing the operations and the control planes and the work necessary to make these things simple to use and, you know, scale easily and deal with outages and stuff like that. And so I think people underestimate as they go from, um, you know, go, a pro- being product companies to being SaaS companies, how much they're going to need to do there. And so what Shoreline is really focused on is, you know, production ops, day two ops, you know, sort of incident automation. So, you know, there have been some great, great companies that have been created around uh, observability or incident management. And, you know, you need those things. Uh, You know, you certainly need to know what's uh, going on. You need to know how to route somebody to work on it. But I got to say, I never got that excited about one more dashboard to look at or slightly better process management to shrink slightly the time before you got the right person looking at something. What got me excited was extinguishing tickets once and for all and, you know, through automation. So we're really an incident automation company. We think of that as the third big area in production ops. And what we're trying to do is say that, hey, for the things that happen again and again and again, why is a human being doing it? You know, why, how can I make it some, a matter of minutes to construct an automation to extinguish it once and for all? Because, you know, as your, your fleets grow a lot faster than your ops team. And your ops personnel do move around and they carry their expertise with them. And so being able to turn it into software makes a big difference because the software will be there. The software will scale in a way that humans won't. And the software will also take a remediating action far faster than a human will. And it can be improved. It won't, you know, it, there are bugs in software always, but you know, they can be extinguished too in a way that, you know, humans just make mistakes. I mean, if you wake me up at three in the morning and ask me to go fix a box, you know, there's a decent chance, at least a 1% chance I'm going to screw it up. I don't know about that. I am pretty compelled by your vision and I see essentially a torrent of opportunities for better cloud experience platforms in the near future. We are so in the dial-up days of cloud is my opinion. Totally agree. Like, so why do you agree with that? Why why are we in the dial-up days of cloud? So, you know, I mean, right now cloud is still uh, the phase where it's about moving workloads from on-prem, uh, sort of lift and shift. You know, there's some amount of re-architecture with things like Lambda and so forth, which are super interesting. 
But what isn't really there is improvement on operability. And if operability is the big problem and availability is the big value you're providing your customers, then you know that's something that needs to be done better. In 30 years ago, uh, if you were an operator, you'd basically get a page and uh, you'd go and crack open your compact a laptop or something and then you'd go and you know try to VPN into some box and fix it. How is that meaningfully different than what you're doing today? It's not. That's nuts. So if I think about let, let's say I think about Shoreline as a universal layer of tools and technologies that I'm going to add to whatever cloud experience I have. Let's say I define your product that way. Maybe you don't define it that way, but that, I, that's what kind of what I see. What are the fundamental cloud products that you can offer in a differentiated fashion? So what we're really trying to do is just improve availability, uptime, reduce labor, reduce errors. And basically the assumption that is is that incidents will happen. You've got software you rely on. You've got hardware you rely on. All things break. The question is, how do you get back to normal as quickly as possible? You know, so it's really a question of how you build in resiliency and how you reduce the time to detect and the time to repair through software. So that's our focus. You know, we want it that may feel somewhat narrow, but we think it's serving a very important part of the um, landscape for cloud operations, which is really everyone who's involved in production on call. And we actually think that's a pretty underserved group. You know, there are tools for them, but there isn't anything that actually meaningfully saves, reduces labor. Can you go deeper on that? What I mean by that is, so there are a bunch of observability products. There are a bunch of different incident management products that will page you. There are tools you can use to for Slack ops that put a team together. There are tools that will help you with uh, postmortems, things like that. How do I actually reduce my workload? I reduce my workload by having the repetitive mundane work done for me. I mean, that's what computers are for. And what a human being should be for, you know be doing is you know dealing with the things that are happening the first time or the second time or in some unusual way that requires some judgment and some intelligence and it can't just be you know click through this uh, workflow in a mechanical way and even for those what we do is an interesting thing where we provide uh, real-time fleet-wide debugging and repair so, you know, in one way you can think about Shoreline is it's kind of like Splunk, except it doesn't have any lag and it lets you change stuff, not just look at it. And so, you know, on the diagnosis and repair side of things, on the automation side of things, you take what you built on that first thing and then you convert it into an action and a bot so that you can generate an alarm and, you know, just automatically repair it. Splunk, but with no latency? That's the real-time stuff. So if you take something like Splunk, you have to uh, index your logs before you can do it. They have to go off box, go into big latent. They get indexed, they get searched, and now it's searchable. In Shoreline, if you want to go and, let's say, grab an access log for warnings, you just go and say, for these resources with these tags where this metric is awry, run a grep command, and it'll just 
fan out in a distributed way in parallel, run the command, and bring you the results back. And so you're basically managing your fleet as though it were a single box. And we're, the assumption is, is that you know how to manage an individual box. But what you don't want to do is play whack-a-mole SSHing into box after box to run commands. All right, I need you to go a little bit deeper on that. So ma- you've said manage your fleet like it's a single box, right? Is that what you said? Yeah. So like, what does that actually mean? So there's basically two parts. So what we're talking about here is the real-time diagnosis and repair of a new issue. So something happens. I, let's say latency is high. I don't know why. I don't have the right metrics. It's not something that's happened before. Or I've tried a bunch of automated steps and they haven't fired, so it eventually went to a human. So what do I do as a human? I want to go and look at a subset of my fleet that's related to this portion of the thing. And I want to run some, um, you know, I want to look at the metrics on there in real time up to the second. So I can, you know, there isn't any latency. I want to do that against the resources again in real time that, uh, you know, because my containers are coming up and down. And what I want to run on those, if the metrics aren't enough, is Linux commands, you know, to look at things like disk usage or, um, uh, you know, the output of a top command or whatever. And then once I diagnose what's going on, I want to run a command across that subset of the fleet to fix it. And so in the case where there's something already built, I didn't have to do that. But if there isn't anything built, my only choice is something like Shoreline or SSHing to fix things, you know, box after box. So that's what I mean. It's basically... Uh, in terms of managing your fleet like it were a single box. We give you a console that lets you run across your boxes, filter the one resources that you want to operate on. And it's basically a simple connection between resources, metrics, and Linux commands, which can just be pipe-delimited together. Okay, this is a very powerful idea. We're going to need to talk about the high-level API and or the like way into this platform whether it's api or like user interface or something like that we're going to talk about that first then we're going to talk about engineering so like let's give people the full stack understanding of what's going on here so at the at the most external level i'm the developer configuring this thing first of all why am i doing this and what am i doing so you're doing this to start with because you have an incident and you need a way to figure out what's going on and then to fix it so we have a web UI, we have a CLI, command line interface. Uh, we also have a Terraform provider uh, you know, so you can deploy things over time. But anything you can do in the web UI or the CLI, you can do in the other. So it's just a taste question. Uh, obviously, with CLIs, you can integrate them into scripts and so forth, you know, which is, and some people like me just prefer CLIs. So inside the CLI, we have a uh, domain-specific language called op. Op is basically a fluent integration of resources, metrics, and Linux commands. So you can do something like grab all my containers where, and then say pipe where this tag, let's say application namespace equals bookstore. If you want to say something like just look at my bookstore containers. And then I might say pipe, CPU usage, just grab the CPU usage. Or I might say CPU usage greater than... 80% to grab the metrics, uh, grab the resources where the CPU usage is high, or you know, just run a succession of pipe operators. That's why I compare it to 
Splunk. And you can also pipe in Linux commands. So like where those things have happened to date, I want to run the top command. Run that top command and give me the output. Okay, now for these particular subset of those, run these other things. So it's basically the same thing you'd be doing against boxes. You know, one box, but it's doing it across your boxes and using dynamic filtering to decide which uh, boxes you want to run on based either based on the tags, the resource tags, which we automatically get out of Kubernetes or EC2, let's say, in the case of AWS. And then you can basically you know, just cascade those things together. So that's what you do on the surface of the product. Does it make sense? It does. Yeah, and let me say one more th- basic thought. So there are two layers of composability. You can compose together resources, metrics, and Linux commands inside an op statement. And then the second layer of composability is you can compose together metrics with alarms, with actions, using a bot. And that's how you construct your automations. You basically use conditional logic against your metrics or output of shell statements to generate an alarm. When the alarm fires, you can associate it with a bot, which can be either a Linux command or a shell script or a call into AWS CLI or anything you can type at the Linux command prompt and you know basically bind it together with a if this then that bot. So this is a step forward in conceptualization of what orchestration in the cloud is. Like you're basically saying, look, cloud at a fundamental level is three things. Metrics, what is it? Metrics objects or something? Resources. What's the second one? Me- yeah. Metrics resources and, like, and Linux commands. Like Linux commands, you know. Yeah, metrics resources, Linux commands, which is like all you need for a cloud-based reactive programming model. Mm-hmm. Where you basically say like, okay, metrics are your health. Like metrics are like your um, what's the Linux command where you like just get like the health check or whatever or like the or like list of things. You know, like I don't top, know. For example. Top, yeah. top. That's what I was thinking. It's like top. Like you want top at all times. You basically want your your infrastructure to react at a fine grained level to top, but like not just fine, not not exactly fine grained, but like the right level of granularity. And the right level of granularity is to perform Linux commands on resources. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, interesting. How'd you get there? How'd you think about that? That's that's pretty sharp. That's like very concise. So I spent a lot of time in databases doing SQL, and you know what. SQL is underneath the covers is an abstraction over what are the unique objects in and how do I uh, try to treat them in a consistent way. And so that's what we're trying to do here. I mean, the difference is, is that I don't think operators want to, you know, like type the equivalent of SQL statements. That's not the world they live in. The world they live in is shell. And so just like Splunk built a type a pipe delimited language to say like, and that's how they do their group buys and filters and just tell me which data you want and from where do you want it. We're doing the same thing. And so, you know, we're doing it totally differently, but underneath the covers, you know, what is a SQL statement? Where do I want to get data from? What data do I want to get? And how do I filter it? So, you know, that's sort of part of it. And then, of course, I want to take action on it. So uh, that's the other part of it. Cool. So, okay. It's a great paradigm to be playing in 
Of course, the dangerous thing about going for a new paradigm is the go-to-market strategy. Like, how do you convince people to buy into this concept? So you're right. It's actually one of the challenges with a product like Shoreline is, is that you're actually changing your environment, right? It's not just looking at it. It's much easier to sell an observability tool, I think, or it's... Um, you know, or a process improvement tool, you're not sitting inside the infrastructure to change it. So I think it will take some time, but, you know, 10 years ago, no one would have let Kubernetes do an oom killer. And yet it's an obvious piece of infrastructure that we do right now. I'm sorry, oom killer? Yeah, what did uh, you say? sorry, and out of memory. Uh, you know, so Kubernetes, you can set it up so that when it's out of memory, it automatically kills the container and brings it back up. So... And so if something is, so for things that are transient where, and not stateful or, you know, the issue goes away after you kill it, it works pretty well. You know, there are issues there, of course, but, you know, what we're trying to do is apply that same uh, concept across all the rest of your infrastructure, VMs and containers, as well as all of the things that aren't repaired by simply bouncing the box, Right. Okay, got it. Interesting. Interesting, interesting, interesting. I mean, what if you made this like, what if you didn't try to sell to individuals? What if you tried to sell to like burgeoning cloud providers? Like, what if you basically said like, we're the platform to build your next cloud, like cloud experience. Like, think about Firebase, right? Like Firebase is a hard company to build. It should be an easy company to build. What if you just said, we're the Firebase building platform? I get exactly what you're saying. I think uh, where we are you know, it's hard to pitch into the hyperscale cloud, cloud providers, obviously. But, but you're not. Like, you're the indie cloud for clouds. Sure, yeah. So what we're trying to do is sell to people who are SaaS companies who are managing large fleets, you know. So, you know, because they happen to be running their infrastructure on a variety of cloud providers, it helps to be able to up-level what you're doing into just a notion of Kubernetes and Linux. But, you know, and deal with all of the variety of infrastructure you're using, like, let's say it's Kafka or RabbitMQ or Kubernetes or whatever disk subsystem or, you know, there's that list just goes on and on and on. And so being able to manage the typical faults in that is useful. So that's who we're uh, sort of pitching to right now. I thought initially about pitching to some of the smaller kind of cloud providers, but you know, I think software as a service is perhaps where you're going as well. And so that's really is the initial version. I also think managed service providers will find this interesting because there they're actually going and taking on the operational pain of running somebody else's environment for them. And so, you know, something like Shoreline improves their uh, service level objectives and improves their uh, margins because they don't have to apply as much labor. Can I take my like cloud for cloud, like hippie cl or uh, hipster cloud for cloud thing a little further and ask you? So, have you looked at render.com? A little bit. What, what do you do? So, like render.com. So, I, I, I put 20, I put a, a small, <laughs> I put a small investment to render.com. I'm an investor, full disclosure. But I invested because I believe they're the next cloud. Like, I basically believe they are the next major player in the cloud. Like, uh, I love Netlify, I love Guillermo's company. Vercel, but like ultimately Render just defeats them all because it's fundamentally better. So the founder, Anurag Goel, you should talk to him because 
I don't know. I have like I'd love to. Not. Yeah. I, I think it could be a really interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. Like I almost think about like I th- so he's he's basically he wants to build basically like cloud reimagined with with developer experience in mind. It's like Stripe. He was early, he was like employee number nine at Stripe, I think. So he's got like basically the best mind for developer experience of anyone in cloud, and so his vision is sort of like top down. Like it's like the same with the AWS thing is like top down and bottom up. Like top down in the sense that developer experience should be like ten x better than the second best player, and then bottoms up in the sense that like we're going to configure infrastructure better than anybody else, and we're going to make products all up and down the stack. And I almost think like your paradigm is what he should be using at the lowest level, like fundamentally, whether explicitly or implicitly, you've basically invented a design pattern that should be used by any major cloud provider. Yeah, I'd love to talk with him. I think whether it's somebody who's creating a new infrastructure cloud platform or somebody who's just saying, hey, I've got this game and I just need it to run reliably across my millions of users. You know, it's kind of what they're actually doing, you know, whether they go all the way up to application or whether they stay in infrastructure, they all need to deal with availability in a fairly yeah. you know, consistent way. But I mean, not just availability, right? It's like availability is like the defensive posturing. But like we're getting into the time where we can play with offensive posturing, even as a cloud, cloud provider. Like what are the most ambitious services we can make, right? Like that's where we want to get to, where we're not even thinking about availability. I mean, internally, um, you have to think about availability, right? Don't you get to a certain point where you're more thinking, like, just at the t- pure product level? Like, when do you get to, like, the Apple level? Like, we're just thinking about the product. We're not really thinking about, like, is iCloud going to sync on time? It depends who you are, right? So if, let's imagine you're EC2. Pretty big business. Now, inside EC2, there's still someone who's thinking about, uh, you know, like, things like how do I reduce my uh, cost of heating or uh, cooling or rather, or, you know, power availability and all of that stuff, or how is my rack stuff. So that's the offensive posture, you know, and so forth. But you also just have to think about things like, uh, how do I keep my systems up? You know, what is changing in the software? What is changing in the hardware, etc. And, you know, some of that, it's really a question of time scale. So there are multi-year projects like a chip redesign, and then there are things that you have to deal with right now, like the consequences of you know, some particular thing that is bouncing or flapping or you know, whatever. Okay, well, um, it, very interesting. So moving back to go-to-market. So what's the, like, I'd love to kind of get a sense of like the timeline, like strategic timeline. Like, how are you going to market right now? Like, are you doing POCs? Or like, what's what's your what's your go-to-market strategy today, and where do you want it to be in a year? So right now we are um, we're a few weeks away from GA, and up till now we've been working with design partners and making sure we have something really that's providing fundamental value to them and dealing with all of the their core needs. You know that there's no reason to, for them to say no. And the way I decide that something is production ready is my customers tells me, hey, I'm tired of design. I just want this thing running because I just had this issue and I actually deployed Shoreline in to just figure out how to deal with this issue. And so I don't care that you're not production. I'm running it in production when I need to. 
And so at that point, I'm like, okay, fine, pay me money. And so, you know, we're just now starting to get those signals from early, uh, you know, design partners. And so for me, that's where you consider yourself to be GA. And so now we move into a phase where we do pilots with people that define a path to production. And for me, the path to production is, hey, every week, let's meet up. Let's talk about some core issue you want to extinguish forever. And let me build an op pack for you that just, you know, extinguishes it, uh, you know, and hopefully in the four or five weeks, you're at the point where you can build those things yourself and you're ready to run. So that's still, you know, early stage. Hopefully over the course of a year, I get to the point where there are maybe a hundred op packs so that out of the box, you're getting something that deals with all of your core infrastructure problems you know, or, you know, you're using 20 out of the 100. And so you just, you know, you get something that's been sort of battle tested by other companies on those. So that's a good place to get started. And then, you know, you, the other thing is, is that maybe, you know, we really do want to work with partners in the observability space, in the incident management space, because the obvious next thing for their customers to do is to automate those things away. It does make a lot of sense. So you're thinking about basically selling to like the Splunks of the world and saying like, we're going to help you manage your Splunk infrastructure better. Both help you manage your Splunk infrastructure better. And hey, you've got customers who, for whom you use, you know, let's say signal effects as part of Splunk, you're providing them observability. Once you generate an alarm, wouldn't it be great if they could then just automatically fix a bunch of them? Okay, I just thought of another person who you need to talk to. Do you know Avi Friedman from Kentic? I may. I'm terrible at names. But... So Kentic is Kentic is this network observability company. Have you heard of it? So maybe you haven't heard of it. So anyway, it's, it's so it's a great network observability company. He's a friend of mine, a high stakes poker player also. But the hilarious thing about Avi is he is so insistent on running his own infrastructure. So he's because he 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 started one of the first DSLs in was it Denver or something? He just he's or not not DSL. Um, ISP. He started one of the first ISPs in some town. So anyway, he's he's very much a run your own infrastructure kind of guy, very cost effective. And I was just thinking while you're talking, like, is that is like, can I use this if I run my own servers, or like, do I have to be on AWS? Uh, we haven't. You know, I'd need to talk to him. Uh, there isn't any deep, deep integration into AWS. You know, the uh, deep thing that we need out of some cloud provider or somewhere is the ability to discover the resources. And so, for example, I might get tags out of EC2 or out of Kubernetes. Uh, so I'd need some place to be able to get the uh, tagification that someone's using to define what the infrastructure is. And then, of course, you know, if I want to do something like grow a disk, you know, right now I call an EBS API. So you know, they'd need to define the actions on what they'd need to change in how to change the environment in their world, right? Because I'm sure they're doing it using software, not uh, having some guy, you know, uh, you know, roller skate over to uh, a rack and, you know, plug in a bigger drive, right? Those days are gone for all of us. Can you tell me anything about POCs or like early conversations or like level of interest from customer base? We're getting... Considerable interest, which is, uh, I think, a sign that there is a deep and abiding pain. So that's great. I mean, for us, I mean, I feel bad for my customers, but, you know, hopefully I'm do something to help them. The um, 
challenge we sometimes see is is that where there's pain, people are also very busy, and so you know, like they can't really look at how to fix something when they're busy fighting a fire right now. So we do get a lot of rescheduled meetings because someone's like, "Hey, I've got a live event. You know, I'll talk to you later." So you know, but I think there's active interest, and I think uh, it's going well. Uh, if you, uh, what you mean by that is. What are the things where people really resonate with pain? You know, we'll mention that, hey, I've got a disc op pack, which just auto grows a volume in some, you know, and with some guardrails on it. They're like, oh, I deal with that four times a day. I'd love that. Or they, you know, a uh, cert rotation, you know, thing. Or, hey, when a uh, my JVMs are, start garbage collecting, you know, I what I really want to do is collect the... Uh, uh, heap dump, stack dump, uh, garbage collection stats, dump it, you know, move it into S3 and then bounce the thing. I don't want to do that manually. So, you know, there are, what frustrates them more than anything else is all of the um, things that they do again and again and again that, you know, just feels like a waste of time that a machine should be doing for them. So those are the things they're excited by. Gotcha. What do you want your business to look like in two years? Like, does it look like you've got like Splunk and LogRocket and Datadog and I don't know what's what's another like customer category that you can go after? Like, what's an easy customer category to go after? Like, uh, you know, I think they're incident Signal management effects. tools. Yeah, all of those, incident yeah. management tools. Yeah. yeah, got it. PagerDuty maybe. Yeah, so I think we'd want to integrate with all of them, or certainly big ones where we could. We'd want to integrate with cloud providers as well. You know, like get onto the AWS partner network and all of that kind of stuff. Most importantly, I want to be serving customers, right? You know, and basically I want them to be able to say like, hey, it's, I've, my on-call shifts are now uninteresting and I'm spending my time during them doing, you know, my other work, you know, like cost optimization or security optimization or work that requires intelligence as opposed to just basically playing ticket whack-a-mole. So the design pattern for selling to Datadog, is it, I'm not, I'm not quite understanding. So like if, if you're selling to Datadog, are you saying to Datadog, we're going to help you manage your, your logging infrastructure better? Like we're going to help you garbage no, collect? That, that would be a partner, not a customer. So the, the notion with a Datadog, for example, you know, aspirationally would be, hey, you know, you generate a monitor in Datadog, wouldn't it be great if you could just bring in a side panel that looks just like Datadog, but in terms of UI, but uh, let somebody actually fix it right there inside your environment. So that would be ideal. That's a different kind of thing than, let's say, a direct customer, let's say, someone who does online games like EA or Epic or something like that. In their case, you're just trying to keep the uh, systems running uh, so because you know any minutes of downtime cost them money and so um, you know you're just trying to make sure that their environment is serving their gamers well so that's a different kind of cost you know that's a direct customer in that sense gotcha so the arrangement would be like would be like okay so once again we revisit the api or the the user interface for shoreline you, def- you look at metrics, or you're, you're able to define metrics, understand metrics across your distributed infrastructure. You have uh, resources across your distributed infrastructure. And then you have Linux commands that you're running on 
swaths of infrastructure, like a collection, like a like a set of different infrastructure boxes, right? That's the API. That's correct. And so I'll basically, the API is basically, you know, here's this, you know, run this DSL command, you know, like you know, which is a pipe b pipe c, which might be something like host pipe CPU greater than ninety pipe top. So that way, you know, it just combines it all together. You just send in a string and you get back a string, which gives you the outcome. So that's the basic uh, model. And then you can use that to build other objects like alarms, actions, bots. And, you know, we'll, on every one of the boxes, run, scrape thousands of metrics, uh, compare them again, you know, derive thousands of derived metrics, compare them against hundreds of alarm conditions and take actions, you know, all within a second. So we do per second metrics and evaluation because, you know, we really believe that time matters in these spaces. There's a lot of tech underneath that as well, of course. We're nearing the end of our time. We've kind of danced around several different topics. What are the major points that you'd like the listeners to walk away with this conversation with? So I guess uh, what I'd say is if you have ticket pain, if you if you believe it's going to grow, you know, we're a useful company to talk to, you know, that um, and just to, you know, we would love just we're early stage. So we'd love to get feedback on how to do our stuff better. But we also think we're starting to serve companies in meaningful ways at reducing their ops pain. Maybe we can do the same for you. So underneath the covers, there's lots of tech, whether it's signal processing or distributed systems or database query optimization or numerical methods that we've adapted into this domain in a way that I don't think anyone's done before, which is why I think we're able to do things that other people don't do. You know, we're uh, but at the end of the day, that doesn't matter. What matters is the value you provide. And so, you know, I think what we're trying to do is reduce tickets for people. Got it. Well, really interesting conversation. Thank you for sponsoring the show. Thank you for coming on the show. I'm very intrigued by the company. I want to help in any way possible because I think you're doing something super innovative. Um, I think cloud is totally just v1 dial up right now and i'm sick of it so i look forward to you making it a little bit better at least thank you so much for having us on uh, having me on and it was a great conversation i really appreciate the time